is that church has started, or church has always, and or has more recently been definitely met down this route of, of actually looking for glory of Jesus Christ to be seen in church meetings. So actually, we fall face down in worship, let your glory shine around, is all about meeting God's glory in terms of worship, in terms of a meeting, whether it's a Sunday morning or a, or a small group. I would just love songs to be written about, which go something along the lines of, let us walk around, let your glory, let Jesus' glory shine. Something like that, as we're walking around. And actually, my heart is that Christ's glory is seen from the individuals in the church as they also walk around. Because we, we rely on just actually our Sunday morning hits as that's where we meet with Christ. And that's not, that's not really what Joe and I are, are coming for. So, Joe and I, um, we are uh, elder in two churches, Lancaster and Kendall. Um, don't ask me the story because it, it's just there. That's where we are at the moment. Um, two churches. And uh, um, I used to lead both of them. I've, been, I've passed them over to other guys who, who developed and, um, and brought through. And uh, we have five children, uh, all of which go on a mission with us. They're all part of our mission and they work with us. We've got two with us here at the moment. Uh, we've got another one who is um, a university, but his choice of university was to do with where there's a church plant. So uh, we sat on the, I sat on the internet with him, and we looked at his free options, his free um, offers of university, and, they, and we looked at the sites, and all we was looking for, really, was um, the, he did, could do the same course, or roughly the same course at each university, where's the best church plant? And in the end, we found the best one was Preston, and that's where he's at now. So he's working in a church plant on his university, in his university course, and that's what he does. Um, we've got other children the range from, this is where I get it wrong, nine? Yeah. To him at university. And we've got all, a mix. <laughs> a mix in the, you want the numbers? Okay, mix in the middle of between two and a half to three years, between each one, quite uh, well, well practiced and well, well, not well practiced, what am I saying? Well, 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 well organized. Well organized. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, and it's not allowed to go public. Um, you can. You blank that bit out. <laughs> I was joking. <laughs> so, guys, for us, really, church is about Christ being on display. And yeah, we want to see Christ in our in our meetings. We don't want to turn up on Sunday to, to not have the Holy Spirit there, not to have Jesus amongst us. That would be rubbish, wouldn't it? It'd be so rubbish. But actually, we don't want it to stop there. Actually, what we want is for when we go home out of that meeting is to Christ to be shining out of us. And that's really what we talk about. So our whole aim is about introducing people to Jesus Christ. That's what we talk about. It's all about bringing people in to meet with Jesus Christ. And that is through our lives. So through our lives. So actually, Jesus Christ isn't in your... And you guys, where do you meet in a school? Is it? In a school. You guys meet in a school. So you're not in a holy of holy churches. But you know that when you're not in that school hall, that actually Christ doesn't linger in that place. It's not a holy of holy places. It's not, it's not some, he is everywhere, but there's no holy presence that comes there just because you've been worshipping there. Jesus Christ is in your hearts. Jesus Christ is in you. So when you walk out of that hall, Jesus Christ walks out with you. And when your friends meet you, Jesus Christ is in you. So when to, to have people, the whole point I'm getting towards this is to have people meet with Christ means that actually... You don't, your aim isn't actually necessarily to bring them on a Sunday morning to that school hall to meet Jesus Christ, because actually they're already meeting him. 
if they're speaking to you. And that's the key thing, is that actually, what does that mean? How does that look like? What does that mean in terms of the people seeing Christ in us? And that's the sort of things that we look at and we, we talk about. So, um, in, in Manchester, we had this um, vision for um, looking at churches. And we saw that there were two, the way we looked at it was that church was being, was being built here. This is church on, on the Bible, on biblical doctrine, on foundations of Jesus Christ, him the cornerstone, great worship, great t- all that sort of thing was great. And church has been built, built here brilliantly. But then all of a sudden, churches thought, well, actually, we want the lost. We want to reach the lost over here. And the way they connect is by thinking, well, how can we do something in the middle of connecting church and the world? So we'll put on fun days, we'll do outreach events, we'll do this, we'll do that. And we'll put on these programs to reach. Even Alpha Courses does that. It tries to connect the world to church. And when we looked in the Bible, we, we felt that we didn't see that. What we were seeing, really, was the, was the church world. What, sorry, it wasn't that we wasn't seeing that. What we saw in there mostly was the, ch- the world of church being in the world world, being in the, amongst the lost. So the, wor- the, the church walking amongst the lost demonstrates Jesus Christ. Now, actually, evangelism events are great things, and you can easily argue from the Bible that they're there in the Bible. Paul preaching the gospel in the Areopagus, in, um, in synagogues, in the marketplace even. So he goes out and he preaches the gospel, and I love doing those things. I've been talking to Raj about my past, preaching on double-decker buses. I used to do all that sort of stuff. Um, and still would if, would if, I, if there were any double-decker buses in Kendall, where I live, but there's not, so... We can't. So, and single-decker buses you get kicked off too quickly. So, so, um, and I'm not radical enough to, uh, to to face that too many times because I'll get put into jail. So, but the thing for us is the thing for us was actually the key element was church itself being a demonstration, not just the five or six people who go out and do uh, uh, street evangelism, but actually the church itself demonstrating Jesus Christ. We want the world to see Christ. We want the world to look at church and see Christ, not church Sunday morning, maybe not even church small group, but actually church us and see Jesus Christ. And that's what we're looking for. And so when we look at these two things and we see this bridging gap between one and the other, actually that's not that's not really what we should be aiming at. What we should be aiming at is where church and the world sit together and live together. So you guys who live in the world are church in the world, and you are therefore Jesus Christ in the world. So when we say glory shine around, how many of you seen the flashing lights and the great awe of Jesus Christ shining around you? You just don't see it, do you? Because that's not what it means. The glory of Jesus Christ is in your character. It's in the way you speak. It's in the things that you do. That's the demonstration of glory of Jesus Christ. So we see that in Matthew 5 where it says, I'm off, I'm off, you know I'm off track here, don't you? We've got planned, and I'm now off plan. So I always go off plan. So in, in Matthew 5, at the end of Matthew 5, and it says, let your good deeds be, go before man that he may praise our Father in heaven. That's the glory of Jesus Christ. So you do things which Christ is demonstrated through the way you live and the way you do those things. And people look at you and will say, why on earth do you do that? Why on earth would you try and, why would you help me like that? Nobody else, nobody else comes to help me in my hour of need. Why do you come and do that? No one, no one ever says hour of need, do they? No one, ever, no one ever comes and helps me when I'm in trouble. So why do you do that? It's because I love Jesus and Jesus was there for me. And I've been there when someone has been there for me. 
And when I was in my worst time, someone was there for me. Who was that? Jesus Christ. And you explain why, what that means, what your testimony is. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, so Jesus is real. Bang, it changes. And that's the glory of Christ in the world. That's the way we see the glory of Christ. So when it talks about, it's gain in Matthew 5, putting, a lamp, putting, up, putting, your, uh, putting your lamp on a, on a high stand rather than putting it under a chair, all of us, all of us will put it under the chair or under the bed or under the couch because we do that. So we walk amongst the world, we walk amongst our work, uh, work colleagues, amongst our neighbours and our friends, and, and we, don't, we don't display Christ. We, we hide it to a degree. But the Bible says, no, put it up on a stand. Let people see it. And that comes in different forms, different shapes and forms, and that's what we're, we'll be talking a bit more about that on Sunday, so you'll hear a bit more on Sunday about how we do that and, and stuff. So let's, let's look at Acts 2.42. So Acts 2.42 onwards, you, we're here, we're talking about uh, this whole vi vision of early church. I'm not going to read it, I'm just going to paraphrase some of the bits that come out of it, but in that Acts 2.42, we, we see all sorts of things, like they were in awe of the apostles uh, 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 preaching, and they saw... Um, wonders and uh, there was prayer going on and there was communion going on all those sorts of things we see in Acts 2 42 and it's all really exciting stuff and then actually but what we miss is the bits in between because actually we we almost devalue them in comparison to those amazing things which are quite spiritual and we devalue them we almost set them aside as becoming secondary actually the Bible doesn't do that the Bible rates them at the same height and that's things like this fellowship being together eating with each other in each other's housing, houses, caring for each other, giving to each other as, as they had need, as people had need. Those sorts of things are just as important as the miracles and, and the apostles' teaching. They're just as, if, if anything, they are more important because these things, these are the way the world sees Jesus Christ. So you get all the way to the end of the Acts 2.42 passage and right at the very end it says, and they had the favour of of all the people. So what does that mean? It means that the world are looking at them, looking at, say, let's use you, you lot as an example, looking at you lot um, and saying, oh, actually, do you know what? You guys are great. What you're doing is great. And that's, that's talking about favourites. Actually, I, I see something in you guys which is just brilliant. That's favour. But the question then is, well, how do they see that? How come the, these people out here don't see that? How come they're not knocking on and saying, we're the wonderful people that meet in this hall? Actually, what it means is that we have to connect to the world in the same way as, as, the, as the guys in Acts 2.42 do. So when it says that they ate around their table in, in each other's houses, what they mean is there wasn't a load of windows in their houses where the world peeking through the windows trying to see what was going on and saying, oh, yeah, that's a really nice meal in there. Oh, look at the way they're sharing. That's really good. That's not what was going on. Actually, the people in Acts 2.42 were welcoming the, the world, the lost, amongst them and saying, come and see Jesus Christ amongst us. Come and see Jesus Christ within us. Come and see what we do, the way we live the way we love each other, the way we care about each other. And then the world is looking at them going, yeah, do you know what? You guys are great. We love what you guys are like. And they get the favor of the world. And then straight after that, it says, and um, people were being saved daily. I think it's something like that, doesn't it? I can't remember the exact word. People were being saved daily. So we, we went, we're on a bit of a mission. So we just feel that um, church is more pointed towards li uh, meetings these days. And... Uh, the, the importance of the meeting takes uh, immense value over the importance of demonstrating Christ in the world. So we see that in the way that church leaders 
often value um, meetings being, as being much more important about reaching the lost. So what they'll say, and they'll stand at the front of their churches and they will say, um, bring your friends. Well, the good thing is make friends and bring them into church on a Sunday morning. What's the point of doing that? There's no Christ in your church more than there is Christ in your lives. It's exactly the same. And they can meet Christ in your lives in a more authentic way and less organized, prepared, planned way in your lives than it cannot do on a Sunday morning than they can do on a Sunday morning. On a Sunday morning, they're likely to walk in. Yes, of course they will meet God in worship. Of course they can meet God in, in the preach. But actually, <coughs> they will also know that the preach is planned, the worship is relatively planned. But actually, when they meet you guys and you are doing things for them and you are caring about them and loving them, and they're seeing your lives, they're seeing something which is really authentic and real. Relationships which are honest and open, <coughs> excuse me, where you are demonstrating who you are in an open way. And actually, as you demonstrate who you are, actually, who are you? Well, you are Jesus Christ. That's who you are. It's not blasphemous to say that. You are Jesus Christ on this earth. Christ lives in your heart. He is in your heart. And he speaks from your mouths. He speaks from your hearts when you care about people. This is Jesus Christ. <coughs> so, meetings and projects. Projects as well. Churches almost see like, well, we get a load of people together in a hall and Sunday mornings are going great. Let's do let's set some projects up. We do projects. We do food banks and we do that sort of stuff as well. And they're great. <coughs> but to be honest, we don't see as many people saved for our food banks as, as, as we would do for our relationship. Every, almost every single person in our church who is saved comes through the community. That's what we see. People who come through the community. And even, we, this week we had one person saved for our food bank. And actually, when you find out, oh great, they saw the provision of food, the provision of Jesus Christ giving food into their lives, and now they're saved. No. Actually, it wasn't that. They didn't get saved when they were given food. Actually, what happened then was one of the people in the food bank befriended them, built a relationship up with them, kept meeting them for coffee after coffee. And that person then, in seeing the Christian, saw Christ in them, and that's what changed it. So she, as part of her testimony, actually says that I, I, I have actually, um, my life was changed through meeting with this person who cared for the, who's cared for me. So project, and people being treated as projects is another nightmare. And, and I... I've, we've been in that situation. One of my close friends who's, who, who once came to me, and I, and I wasn't really even viewing it until he came and spoke to me. I said, how are you doing in church at the moment? Because um, I, I was just becoming his friend at that time. He'd just been in church about three months. And he said, I'm doing fine. But I've got this guy who, who keeps ringing me up and trying to meet with me and things. And uh, I said, oh, that's great. That's good. He's, he obviously cares about you. He said, yeah, but do you know what? I just feel like I'm a bit of a project with him. So I go and see the guy, and he goes, oh, yeah, the leader asked me to go and meet with him and, and just make sure he's, he's, he's happy in church and that he's fitting in well. And it's just like, well, you can see, do you know what? Let's not, let's not knock the, the heart behind that, because the heart behind that is to integrate the person into church and love and care for them. But actually, the person felt like it was a project, because actually what was happening was that he the guy who was going to see him was doing it because he was being asked as a task to do, rather than, actually, why don't you go and just be with him and be a friend to him? and offering genuine friendship. And do you know what people know? This guy is sharp, but all, or everyone's sharp when it comes to people, because people have lived with people for years. You guys have lived with people all your lives. And you know when someone's treating you like a project or someone's offering you genuine friendship. You know when there's a motivation behind a friendship, when it's a bit, what's going on here? Why do they want to be my friend? And you know that. 
And I think that's, I think that's, we've got to be careful about the way that we offer, offer our friendship to people because actually friendship must be genuine and not, and not being some sort of project. So if we're saying, right, do you know what? I'm just going to get to know my neighbors because I want, I want to, they're going to be, I want to see them saved. Their target is to be, see them saved. It's actually wrong. If I just want, if I'm only going to speak to my friends to see them being saved, then do you know what? And if they're not really interested in being saved, I'm going to go and find somebody else. And if you go down those sorts of lines, and then you're, all of a sudden you're, you're treating people like this project, like this cystic, I want to see, oh, do you know what? Raj just told me we've only seen five people saved this year, and our target is 10. I better get going and get, get some more people saved. And it's just, what is a statistic? Actually, we're deal, dealing with people, people who, who have feelings, people who are real, and people who need to meet Jesus Christ. And actually, your goal isn't, your goal isn't to see, just see them saved. Your goal is to befriend them to offer real genuine friendship and through that friendship demonstrate Jesus Christ and through that demonstration of Jesus Christ then those people will be saved that's the aim which is very different to saying I'm just going to meet with this person so I, I love this story uh, uh, I think we mentioned it last night I love this story of the rich young ruler and it's just fantastic because the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and he's going like you tell me when you want to stop and, and the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says and says um, what what Hold on, uh, he, he says, I want to be saved. And, and Jesus says, we well, can't because, uh, he says, how can I be saved? And Jesus says, you've got to follow, do all the things it says in the good book. And he says, well, I'll do that. And he, Jesus said, looked at him and said, yeah, I see, can see you're doing that, but you've got to give away your wealth because that's a problem for you. And he turns around to Jesus and says, I can't do that, and just turns around and walks off. And then G afterwards, after he's walked off, after he's rejected salvation and he's walked off, he's, he's turned his back on Christ, it then says Jesus did these things because he loved him. We need to love people whether they're going to be saved or not. Our, our remit for the world is to love people. Yes, of course, we want them saved. Yes, our best form of loving people is seeing them saved. Yes to all of those things. But actually, we need to love people needs to be first and foremost. If we just go for just seeing salvation, and that's our primary objective, it becomes a grab-grab situation. Oh, we've got, we've got a barbecue. Our, 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 is it life group? Our community group is, has got a barbecue this week, and I know there's going to be some non-Christians non -Christian, there. And, and then you go there, and everyone's thinking, right, we need to get those non-Christians saved. And that's the aim. Rather than, actually, no, these are people. They need friends. Let's befriend them. Let's be friends with them. Let's demonstrate Christ through our lives. So it doesn't mean going up to them and saying, oh, how are you with Jesus? Or, or so you're, I understand you're not a Christian. Oh, you know the rest of us are. You're a bit odd. Yeah, but do you know what? You can be a Christian like us. And all of a sudden, you're like, and the guy's like, what is this? What's going on here? I've only been asked here so I can become a Christian because if that's the reason you've asked me to this barbecue, then I'm, I'm, I'm out. Actually, the real reason should be because they're going to find friends in that room. And you see this massive thing with the... With the uh, I'm just going to finish on this. Um, this, this thing on the with the paralytic. And uh, I love this story because um, you know, you know where, the, where the friends go and pick him up and carry him on the mat to Jesus because they want to see if their friend healed. So they go there... Uh, they hear Jesus in town. They go there with a mat. They, they plop him on a mat to carry him to Jesus. They, they, they drag him up to the, uh, drag him, carry him up to the house, and they find loads and loads of people all outside the doors, all up at the steps. They can't get him in the building, so they, they climb onto the roof. It dangers their own life and drop him through the roof to see Jesus. What the aim of this group of friends is, they want their friend to meet Christ. It's exactly the same as us. We want our friends to meet Christ. We do the same as them, and we need to move heaven and earth for them to move Christ, except we don't pick them up, gather around them, and pick them up and carry them to Jesus. When we gather around them, we are presenting Christ to them.
It's instant because we are Jesus Christ is in us. We are Christ's representation. Christ is in our hearts. We are being changed to be like Christ day by day, bit by degree by degree. We are becoming like Christ Jesus and his glory shows through us, the things we do, who we are. So guys, that's, that's the, the, the strategy and theology behind it. Joe's going to do it with theology and examples of, of what we do now. So I'll pass it over to Joe. Morning, everyone. So I'm just going to talk to you for the rest of our time together, and then we'll have some time for questions and answers, if that's all right. Um, but to really look at some of the more practical side about what this looks like in our actual lives. It sounds really good stuff in theory, doesn't it? But how do we actually outwork that? So I'm going to tell you a bit about how we live our lives, hopefully to inspire and challenge and stir you, not to say that you have to go and do exactly the same as us, but to help you to start to think, okay, what things can I do? How can I make some changes to be um, living this more actively in my life? At first, I'm just going to read to you from 1 John 3, verses 16 to 18. It says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and see his brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. That's what we want to do, isn't it? That's who we want to be. It's inspiring and challenging. But when we read that scripture, I think we very often focus on the material possessions, on that sense of sharing the stuff that we have, uh, meeting people's practical needs. But actually where that verse started was in saying that Jesus laid his life down for us, so therefore we must lay our lives down for others. It's not just talking about the stuff that we can give people and how we can serve people um, in a kind of functional way. Actually, it goes much further than that. It's talking about sacrificially laying down our lives for people to meet their needs, not just their material needs, but actually the needs deep within their soul. Actually, Everybody that we know, all our friends, all our neighbours, all the people that we meet at work or whatever context we are in, actually they all have needs. They might not have material needs. They might be really well off. They might not even feel like they've got any needs. But actually they have. We all need friendship. We all need love. Actually we all need Jesus. And we can be those that meet those needs by sharing the things that we do have by showing Jesus that we have in us. The challenge is, how do we fit that into our lives? Because the reality is, we're all busy people. Maybe you have jobs, maybe you have kids, maybe you have hobbies, gardens. Gardens can take a lot of time. <laughs> Maintaining your house, all the stuff that crowds in in our lives. Actually, the reality is, I mean, well done for being here this morning. Good job, you've come out on a Saturday, you've given up some time, because time is actually in our culture the most valuable commodity that we have. It's really, really hard to make time for people. You've got church meetings to go to, like this. 
you've got your community groups, you've got the, this all this stuff to do, ways to spend your time. How can you make time, make more time for other people? I've got a question to ask you that I think is going to help answer this question. It might be a challenging one. Have a think for a minute before you can answer me. Do any of you ever eat? <coughs> oh, it's not so, you're laughing. It's not such a difficult question after all, is it? Actually, by the fact that you're sat here looking healthy, shows me that you do, in fact, all eat. You all take the time in your day-to-day -day lives to consume food. Do you know, this is a golden opportunity in our lives. It really is. It's a golden opportunity to take some time that we're already spending doing a thing and to do it with some other people. Suddenly, it's not a massive impact. We're not having to create that space for another meeting, another gathering, another massive going out. What are we going to do? Let's go to the cinema or bowling. Let's invite our friends to that. No, no, we all eat. We all have teas and coffees. We all have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, probably. Most days, maybe not, I don't always eat breakfast, let's be honest. But, you know, actually, we have an opportunity without taking a massive block of time. You don't have to give people a whole evening. You can just invite them around for tea. It's a different way of thinking about how we can be creative with our time. So the question then is not just do you eat, but who do you eat with? And then we've taken things to a much deeper level. On your average day, week, month, year, who do you eat with? If there is one thing I want you to take away from this morning, it is this question to go away and think, who do I eat with on a day, week, month, year? And then see if you can make some changes to increase your answers to that question to make that more people. But here's the problem. The here is my problem. This was my problem. And I know you're not going to believe this. But really, really and truly, I used to be an incredibly shy person. I know it's hard to believe. Any of you that have ever spoken to me before today and met me, it doesn't sound true. It's really true. I used to be a very, very shy, insecure, fearful person. You can tell that God has made a difference in my life. I could not have done this. I got married when I was 18 years old. I had never cooked a meal before in my life. I'd done home economics lessons at school. It wasn't really edible food, and it wasn't really what you could, could constitute a meal, really. I could sort of make a sandwich. That was pretty much um, the extent of my abilities. Uh, when I got married, I had to suddenly start cooking, not just for me, but for my husband. I just did it on the phone to my mum all the time. A wooden spoon in one hand, phone in the other. What do I do next? <laughs> now, the truth is that my cooking skills haven't, haven't increased a large amount oh, at this point. They have. Oh, they have. Bless you. They, they haven't really. I haven't. Some people can like really cook, can't they? They can take sort of raw ingredients and really cook. It's just not something I'm ever going to really be able to do. Not well. But I can sort of assemble things. 
Now, we had this wonderful lady in our church um, in, at, at the time when we got married who was just the most gifted, hospitable person. She really, she could cook amazing meals. She had more kids than me and the most, at the time, and the most beautiful, immaculate, tidy, clean house. I still have no idea how she did it. it. Honestly, you could surprise her walking in. It would always be perfect. There was never washing up piled in the sink. There was never dust. It just it didn't exist. I have no clue how she achieved it. I thought that to be hospitable, I had to be like her. And this was a really, really big problem in my life because no matter how hard I tried, I just couldn't do it. Not only could I not cook food that tasted that nice, I literally couldn't keep on top of the tidying and the cleaning. Not like, not like I just couldn't. Now, some of you might have this skill. Bless you, that's wonderful. I, I just don't. And you know what I've learned is that I'm never going to. It gets slightly easier as the children start leaving home. They make less mess. It's, but still, no. Not, it just, I can't do it. And when we moved to Manchester, I was 26 years old. I had three small children, and I had a decision to make. I really felt God challenge me. Am I going to let my inability to be clean, tidy, and competent chef stop me, or am I just going to choose not to care and to make a decision to live my life in a different way in spite of my inabilities? I felt like I had to work on these areas, get better at this stuff, and then I could invite people in. So when we moved to Manchester, before we moved, we'd basically not really ever had anyone round for dinner. I think sort of once we had. But I just made a choice. In fact, when I spoke on this at Devoted, a girl who was, was in our church in Manchester came to me afterwards and said, was that true? You had never had someone round before you moved. She literally couldn't believe it because it was as simple as making a decision and then choosing to work it out. So my house did not become miraculously clean and tidy. I just made a decision that I wasn't going to care what people thought. My cooking really didn't improve, but I just made a choice that I wasn't going to let it bother me. And the truth is that on the inside, of course, we, can't, um, we can make a decision in our head, but our emotions don't necessarily come straight in line with that, do they? So the reality is, I don't know, 15 years on, I actually do still care. <laughs> I do, but I just take a deep breath and choose to remind myself that I care about something else more. So... We do live in an, in an English culture, particularly us in Kendall, very white middle class, where people, the British people are very, very polite. So actually they don't come in and say, oh, your house is really dirty and untidy and your cooking is not good. But what they do do is, they can't help it, sometimes it leaks out. <laughs> so what happens is if I have tidied a, a little bit or made some kind of effort, they come in and they go, wow. <laughs> What's happened here? <laughs> it's rude. <laughs> <laughs> it happens all the time to me. It's rude. And I say, yeah, I tidied up a bit. 
In fact, recently, our house has just gone on the market, so I've had to make some major changes to make it bearable, you know, to give it any hope of anyone ever wanting to buy it. And actually, when I started cleaning and tidying up a bit, before people knew, people didn't know we were moving, two people in the same day came in and went, are you moving? <laughs> it was literally, it's so obvious. Again, rude, rude. People not always so polite. I have to choose to care about something more than I care about what people think about my ability to tidy. Do you know what else is helpful in British culture is that people have to be kind of polite about your food as well. So actually the cooking doesn't have to be that good because they just have to eat it. <laughs> or at worst, push it around their plate a bit and go home and have a piece of toast. That's okay. I can do what I can do and some things I can't do but I have to choose that I care about something more. The reality is that in every culture, there are things that help us and things that hinder us. And the truth is we have to not let our culture define us. It doesn't define how we then choose to live. So in a British culture, broadly speaking, it's not the most hospitable culture, but people do have to be polite Actually, you might be engaging with people who actually have a much more hospitable culture. It might be much more normal for people to be in one another's homes. But then the, the challenge there is to show that it is something more than just cultural norm, that actually you genuinely love and care for people. It's harder in a more hospitable culture to show your heart, perhaps. In an English culture, it's more surprising when somebody invites you in. But the good thing is that they have to be polite on the whole. So I genuinely still, I still just can't cook that well. But what we do is we've just had to put some systems in place to make this work for us. So the tidying and the cleaning stuff, we just have to shelve that. I do what I can. It's not like a health hazard usually. We just, you know, I try. The cooking, you do have to give people something, don't you? So I made a plan to make it work. And what I find is that having it planned in means that it will happen. If you haven't planned it in, it just never will, which is why I'm asking you this question to reflect on who do you eat with. You have to plan it in. It just never happens otherwise. So we have a weekly pattern in our house. My children know the days of the week by what we eat on them. <laughs> Tuesday night, for example, is pasta night. Cheesy bacon pasta every week. There is no deviation, pretty much. <laughs> Friday, pizza night. Saturday, fish and chips. Sunday, ready roast chickens. Then salad and potatoes. We have these rhythms, these plans in life because I discovered that what I couldn't do, you might be able to do this, but what I couldn't do is I couldn't answer two questions at once. I couldn't answer who is coming and what am I cooking. But if I know the answer to one then it doesn't matter who comes. I cook meals that you can multiply. You can just easily say, who's here? This is what we say, who's in the house? Who knows who else is coming? Give me some kind of ballpark, then we can multiply. You can keep a large amount of pasta in your cupboards. It doesn't matter if it all doesn't get eaten that night. Bacon keeps a really long time. Cheesy bacon pasta, I'm a big campaigner for it. It's a great thing. Easy. Easy. You boil some smart price pasta, you fry a bit of bacon and onion, you stick in some broccoli and cream and cheese. Bob's your uncle. 
It's not really cooking, is it? It's just assembling ingredients. <laughs> you can do it on scale. Extra bit of garlic bread if you need it. Pizza. We just buy smart price pizzas, add some toppings, and keep cooking them until my, my freezer is always full of pizza. We just keep cooking it until people stop eating. It doesn't matter who's coming, we can just keep going. Ready roast chickens on a Sunday. Easy. You shove 20 baked potatoes in the oven before you go to church. If they don't get all eaten, that's okay. We know what we're having for Monday and maybe with our pastor on Tuesday. And you I go and I start inviting people who would like to come back for lunch. Asda on the way home, ready roast chickens, bag of salad, job done. If more than 20 people come, you obviously halve the potatoes and quickly cook some pasta to go with it. It's actually really, really simple if there's a plan, if you've thought about it in advance. This is not, I'm not saying make your houses immaculate and become really good chefs. I'm saying share your lives, invite people in, give people the opportunity to see who you really are. Because when they see who you really are, they're meeting Jesus as well, as Rob's already shared with us. What if you don't have a home? What if you don't have somewhere that you can invite people back to? The chances are you know some other people who do have a home. So you just go there. You just turn up on their doorstep. Now, this is something that isn't normal in British culture to just with school mums, when I turn up on their doorstep, it's a surprise. But they have to be polite. <laughs> <laughs> so they have to say, hi, do you want to come in? Yes, I say. Would you like a cup of tea? That's all we do, drink tea. This is basically my plan for reaching the nation, is tea, drink a lot of tea. Yes, I'd like a cup of tea. They have to invite you in. Now, you're in a church family. You can team together. You can include other people in your strategy and your mission to reach the nation, to reach your town and your city. When we first moved to Kendall, I turned up on the school gate I'd deliberately chosen the nearest school so that I could walk to school and stand around and chat and talk to mums. And then if the opportunity was there to invite them in for a cup of tea, they could walk. We lived practically opposite. They could just walk back with me, come in for a cup of tea. So I got talking to this lady, Rachel, this mum. Her daughter was starting in reception, the same as mine. We chatted on the school gate. The time went by and I said, oh, do you, do you want to come in for a cup of tea? And she said, yes. Honestly, this woman walked in, sat down on my sofa and pretty much said, what must I do to be saved? It was the shock of my life. I hadn't really, I had mentioned, she obviously knew we were a Christian. I'd obviously told her why we'd moved. We'd moved to plant a church. I t must have told her why we'd moved. There must have been some kind of clue. Actually, I didn't know, you see, that God was already at work in this woman's life. I'd just met her invited him for a cup of tea. What must I do to be saved? Almost in those words. It's never happened to me before or since. Do you know, I've been a Christian a really long time. I've been in youth group. I have been trained in my 30-second gospel, my like five-minute gospel, my 20-minute gospel. When she said this to me, I had nothing. <laughs> I panicked. I could not think of anything sensible to say to her. The good thing was that she was asking that question because God was at work in her life. I just sort of blundered my way through, didn't really say anything helpful, gave her a cup of tea. But God was at work, and actually I had the privilege through really providing tea and a bit of nonsense, really, 
to this lady, but actually she'd seen something in our lives. And she didn't get saved that day. We went on a journey of friendship and relationship with her. And actually, she now leads all our kids' work, our food bank. She leads, well, part of Going Bananas at at Devoted last year, she was leading the younger ones. Uh, Actually, she has had her life totally transformed by Jesus. Her family has been totally transformed by Jesus. And I had the privilege of playing a part in that by offering her a cup of tea. It's good news, isn't it? It's really simple, actually, to share our lives with people. Around the same time, a lady in our church gave me a scripture. I'm going to read it to you now. It is from Proverbs. Proverbs 14, verse 4. It says this, where there are no oxen, the manger is empty, or in some versions, clean. But from the strength of the ox comes an abundant harvest. It did not take me long to work out where she was going with this. Oxen, no oxen, clean stable, big ox, a lot of poo, mess uncleanliness. I feel she might be making a comment on my life. (laughs) I think it's meant as an encouragement. I shall try not to be offended. Do you know, it's really, really, really true. We live in Cumbria now. We used to live in, in Manchester and London before that. I'd never really seen a stable, but now we live in Cumbria. I have seen a stable. We've actually had a horse. I know what a clean stable looks like. It's lovely. It smells nice. It's tidy, you've got lovely hay and straw on the floor. It's a really, really lovely thing. When you then put an animal in it, everything doesn't stay that way. When you put a big ox in a clean stable quickly, you have got a mess that you have to deal with. But that is the way to have a harvest, to bring in a harvest, is to let people mess up our lives. I'm not going to lie to you. It does mess up your life choosing to share it with people. It does mean that when people turn up at my house because they know they're allowed to, it is not always at a convenient moment. It does mean that when I'm on my way to Asda to pick up a few bits, I have to choose. Am am I just going to pop in on that person? It messes with our schedule. It does. It messes up our lives. But what I'm saying is, that it's worth it because we want the harvest. If we want the harvest, we have to have the mess along the way. In our family, we like to share stories. I think all families like to share stories. Do you remember when? Do you remember when stories? It helps to build a sense of identity, doesn't it, in our families. It's fun to remember things that have happened in our lives. We have some stories that we like to talk about in our family. We say, do you remember when that boy pooed on the patio? <laughs> well, they do remember. <laughs> do you remember when that little girl weed in that handbag? <laughs> it wasn't my handbag. It was my friend's. <laughs> sick, sick, sick. So many stories about sick. I can't even begin to tell you them all. Blood on the carpet. Amniotic fluid. That was a surprising one. Oh, <laughs> bright red nail varnish all over a freshly painted white wall. I say all over, only up to about this height. 
Because <laughs> that was how high they could reach. <laughs> Poo on a trampoline. These are the stories that we remember. Let me tell you, each of these moments messed up my day to one degree or another. It did. Nobody wants to clear up sick or poo or wee. Nobody wants to deal with these things. It's not like I wake up in the morning and think, oh, what body fluids can we remove from my house today? What an exciting adventure this will be. <laughs> it messes up my life. I don't actually like clearing up stains. and I, I've already told you I don't like cleaning. I don't. <laughs> A clean stable is nice, but we need the ox for the harvest. People will mess up your life. But the truth is, you see, that each of those stories is part of a bigger picture. That poo on the patio is actually the story of a friendship that will last me a lifetime. A friend that I can rely on. She lives hundreds and hundreds of miles. She didn't poo on the patio. It was her son. <laughs> Let me just be clear. <laughs> she, she wasn't the one. Her son. Actually, it's a relationship uh, that where we can encourage and support one another. And uh, no matter that we've moved 300 miles away now, actually, that is a friendship for life. That we in a handbag... Oh, there are so many stories about this family, but that we in a handbag is actually a family who we were able to have the privilege of supporting through the loss of a child. Not the we in the handbag child, they lost a baby. And actually that family is our family. Those kids are like brothers and sisters to my kids. When they lost a sibling, my kids lost a sibling too. Actually, we have eaten with that family probably more than anybody else. And they have shared our lives day to day. I've picked up those kids and taken them to school, taken them back for months and months and months. They are part of us. That messes up your life. But actually, we've seen that family loved and supported through a tragedy, an unspeakable tragedy. I was there with them when that baby was born and when she died about 45 minutes later. That messes with your life but I wouldn't do it a different way. The sick, the blood, the amniotic fluid, actually those are all stories of families now released on a church planting mission. Actually, as it happens, a number of families have gone together, friends of ours, to Blackpool. They are literally just launching their church plant now. Um, and that those people, we have had the privilege of being alongside, sharing our lives with, their advancing of the gospel, we participate in because we are in relationship with them. Our kids actually regularly, our little ones regularly go and stay in Blackpool. You ask our little ones about Blackpool, they wax lyrical on the subject of how amazing Blackpool is because they're caught up. Our kids get the privilege of being caught up in this church planting mission, even though we're not actually living there now. They're part of it. They're part of that community. We are because we've built relationship. We've spent time. We've shared our lives with these families. We've helped to inspire them and see them moving on with the gospel. The nail varnish is a salvation story. It's actually, it's actually Rachel, the cup of tea story as well. It was her wall, my child, <laughs> a big mess. Her husband was seriously unimpressed. It takes a lot of painting over red nail varnish and a white wall 
bad news. When you smell, we smelt this smell. What is that smell? Well, it smells like it smells like nail varnish. It was, it was. But actually, it's a salvation story. That messed up her life a little bit more than mine. Well, it was really embarrassing, actually. <laughs> the poo on a trampoline. I can't really tell you how difficult it is to get poo off of a trampoline. <laughs> I'm going to say. Actually, this is just a wonderful ongoing story in our lives. I have an Iranian Muslim friend. I'm sure lots of you have Iranian Muslim friends living in this area. When we first met her, she was taking one of her children to preschool at the same preschool as us. She'd been living in the UK for five years. Her husband had been living here for, say, 20 years. He had really, really good English and, and a career and all sorts of things. But she had been living in the UK for five years. She had no English. She had no friends. She basically never really left the house because she couldn't really talk to anybody. The only thing that she was really going out of the house to do was to take her firstborn to this preschool that we were going to. And my friend Portia, Portia who lost a baby, she said, we're going to be her friend. Now the truth is that I probably wouldn't have made that choice without her. Uh, the language barrier for me was a pretty scary issue. <laughs> it was definitely out of my comfort zone. But Portia made a decision. She said, we are going to do this. I said, okay. <laughs> so Portia starts inviting this lady to our coffee morning. Portia, every week, she goes and invites her to the coffee morning. Of course, this woman didn't speak English, so she didn't understand that she was being invited to a coffee morning. This scary British woman was just coming up to her and talking to her. She had no clue. Portia didn't give up. She kept on and on and on. <laughs> One day... The husband brings the child to preschool. So Portia goes up to him and says, please remind your wife about our coffee morning. She's brilliant, isn't she? She knew perfectly well this woman didn't know about the coffee morning. <laughs> please remind your wife about the coffee morning. We would like her to come. What coffee morning, he says, unsurprisingly. She explains. He drives home. He gets his wife. He puts her in his car. He drives her to coffee morning in one of our homes. He puts her out. He makes her come every week. <laughs> every week, he goes, he puts his wife in the car, he drives her to wherever coffee is, he puts her out, he makes her come. Poor woman, honestly, really scary. Really, really scary. She comes in, we talk to her, we say, blah, blah, blah. She goes, <laughs> she says to us, blah, blah, blah. We go, or sometimes, I don't know. Months and months and months and months of uh, gradually beginning to understand each other a little more. The other problem was we didn't know anything about Iranian culture. Not a clue. I've learned a little now. It's taken about six years before we've got to a level where we could sort of discuss this. She used to come to our house and we would say to her, would you like a cup of tea? And she would say, oh, no. Now, we thought that she didn't want to eat with us on religious grounds because she knew we were Christians and she was a Muslim. That's what we, we thought. My friend Portia had actually worked with a lot of Muslims before, very strict, who wouldn't eat with her. So we thought she was saying no because she didn't want to eat with us. So, of course, we didn't want to make her feel awkward. And we take people yes to mean yes and no to mean no when we offer somebody something. So we didn't give her a cup of tea. 
What we didn't understand, that what we should have done was asked her and asked her and asked her, and she's going to say no to us six or seven times, and eventually we're going to take her a cup of tea and some biscuits, and we're going to sort of force her to have them. That would have been polite. We didn't know. We thought that would have been really rude, so we didn't do it. The poor woman didn't eat or drink anything for about six months. She must have been really thirsty, watching us all drink and eat biscuits. I feel dreadful now. In the end... She cracked before we did. She just started having to say yes, or she realised she would never get anything. <laughs> it's honestly only been in about the last two years that we've discovered this. So bad, felt dreadful. But in the end, she said yes, she would have a cup of tea. So actually, she is a good friend. She has learned to speak English. She has found friends. She is part of a community. They're very much part of our church community. They're coming our weekends away, all sorts of things. Their kids are in our Christmas nativities. Um, they, are, they belong to us. They're part of us. She's been able to get an education and a job because she's got English now. Actually, her life has been totally, totally transformed by being invited around for a cup of tea. That's all we did. Invited a woman who couldn't understand us around for a cup of tea, persistently, admittedly. And it wasn't me, <laughs> really. I got to partner in that. I didn't initiate it. So her life has been transformed. And one day at coffee morning, she said to us, I understand. Because she's trying to learn about English culture and church culture, and she sees that they're not the same thing. She says to us, you are not English. <laughs> Which it, I understand what she means. It's true. And one day she looked at us and she said, oh, I see. Church is a family. Yes, we said, it is. Church is a family. And we hadn't used those words to her. We hadn't told her that. That was her observation of seeing how we lived, of being allowed in to be part of that family, to be part of our community. Now, she hasn't given her life to Jesus yet. I pray that she will. Maybe she won't. I can't make her. I know that it is what is good for her. We take every opportunity to share what we believe as Christians, what Jesus has done for us, how he's reared in our lives. But in the end, I can't make her believe. But even if she never believes, Lord, I pray that she does. But even if she never believes, her life has been transformed by the grace of God. It has. Her world has been turned upside down by being allowed to come and belong to the family of God, to be part of our community. That's what Pooh on a trampoline does. It was her trampoline. It was bad. She spent a long time. You just, again, you just can't get it out. When it gets in the little holes, it's really tricky. Do you know, as church family, we are really are together on a mission. And the trick is that also we can't just do it on our own. We need to be a team. We need to be a family active and working together. I would never have spoken to this lady if Portia hadn't said we're going for her. In fact, Portia finds it really difficult to kind of, um, she would say, to kind of close the deal, to kind of really come in with the gospel. That's not something she finds very easy to kind of encourage people to the next step. But what she is excellent at is identifying being led by the Spirit, who, who should we go for? Who are we going to invest in? Who really, um, who needs us? 
who needs us to get alongside them. And she's excellent at uh, doing something that I find more difficult. But together, we're a great team. Nearly every story I ever tell, actually, is about the, the two of us working together and how we've actually been able to, as a team together, share Jesus with people and let people into our lives. She's not very well. She can't really have people around her home. She just invites them to mine. <laughs> she does, all the time. Oh, I've invited this family. <laughs> Is that all right? She knows it's all right. She doesn't need to ask. All her children's birthday parties, they all happen in my house. She just invites people. Is this date okay? I've invited 20 children and their mums, and they all have to stay. And they have coffee, and they have tea, and they have party food, we play games. And then when those mums are having a crisis, they know where I live. And they do turn up on my doorstep. It happens, it's happened. They turn up on my doorstep, weeping because they've fallen out with their husband or something terrible's happened. And they come and knock on my door because they know where I live. All we did was invite them to a children's party. But it was intentional. We're making a plan. We're choosing to let people in and to mess up our lives. Because together, we can show Jesus to the world. When your friend meets just you, the truth is they think, you're a nice person. When they begin to be able to come and see the community of the church, they can begin to say, oh, hang on, you're all nice people. There's something more to you than this. It's not just that you <coughs> are a nice person. It's actually they begin to, to understand what they're seeing is Christ in you. It's I'm actually not that nice a person. <laughs> not. But Jesus is really good and gracious and loving and chooses to partner with me in the gospel. Why? Who knows? It's the mystery of God, isn't he, that he chooses to use us. And actually, when they meet me and Portia and Rosalind, and all these other people, suddenly they see, there's, oh, there's something, there's, there's something else. They begin to see it must be Christ. And we have a real opportunity to be effective in reaching people for the gospel just by letting them in. So, who do you eat with? Ask yourself, seriously, ask yourself this question. Who do you eat with every day, every week, every month, every year who do you let in who do you go for coffee with that counts as eating you can eat cake <laughs> who do you eat with and let's let's try and make it more that would be my provocation to you today let's try and make it more um so stay here um so um, I like the fact that uh, when Joe describes that our house and when she talks about um, people coming around and seeing us for who we are, there's a degree um, of being able, allowing people to see who you really are. I think sometimes English culture, sometimes Christian culture, is that we feel that we've got to reject something of who we are, our Christian values, as in doing them in a way that is more rather than them being what we are. So our Christian values come from who we are in Christ Jesus, not from a set of rules that we follow. And so when people come into our house and they see our house the way it is, then actually what they're seeing is they see what they get. They see who we are and they see us, the reality of us. And then therefore they know, actually, they, they start to get to know us from that first moment. It's almost like, and here we are, this is who they are. We see what we get, we get what we see. 
and that's what it is. So a big, a big thing for us, um, one of the big reasons why we do this is that we ask, uh, in many evangelistic talks, I would ask the question, how many people in this room were saved through the involvement of a friend or a um, family member? And when we ask some people to raise their hand, if you were, then around about 95% of people would put their hands up and say it was a family member or a friend who took them along something or got involved in something. What that is saying is actually it was a relational drawing of them to Christ. And of the 5% are left over, usually at least another 2 or 3% have got it wrong. So as Joe described last night, it's like they'll say, yeah, oh no, I got saved at a Billy Graham, Billy Graham rally. And how did you get to the, get to the Billy Graham rally? Oh yeah, a friend took me. And then their, their hand is up as well. And it usually works out about 97, 98% of people are saved through relationship. Which is why this is our form of evangelism. It's biblical. It gets results. It's, it's God's plan A for the world. It's the church. That's God's plan A for the world. It's the church demonstrating Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no other plan. And so sometimes, yeah, you will get your one, one person who is walking down the street and they just happen to hear some street, street work, but you're talking one in thousands, or maybe even more than that. At its relationship is how people get saved, family or friends usually. And so what we aim for is family or friends, display of Jesus Christ, display of the gospel, people saved. Bang. So that's what we see. Yeah. One other little story I remembered of, um, of Portia and Joe working, which I just wanted to share you extra before we do question and answers, is that... Uh, I don't know if you, many of you have seen the series, Come Dine With Me. So uh, Come Dine With Me is usually when five, the TV program gets five people together. And when it first started out, it was really good. They started to get a bit showy afterwards, a bit like Big Brother used to in the end. But they used to have five people who would cook a dinner around each person's house. And you would get in, see into that person's life by visiting their house. And the, five, the other four people would become, come with them. They, they, they'd cook a dinner at each person's house. And then they would, the other four people would vote on it. And at the end of the five... Um, uh, meals, they would see who's won the, the best meal and presentation and all the rest of it that goes with that. And so Joe and this woman, Portia, uh, decide they're going to do that. You can imagine that this was a challenge for me. Let me tell you, the solution is Nigella Express. <laughs> Open some tins of slightly more expensive ingredients and stir them together. That's the way. <laughs> and so, Por so Portia is the the sort of the, the, as Joe says, is the strategic mastermind behind it. So I even suggested her one, uh, one time, I said, oh, what have you thought about this person, this, this non-Christian who's part of our community? And, and she goes, uh, no, Rob, I've already got them planned. What she, so what Joe was saying is correct. Actually, what she does is she spiritually thinks about who does God want me on that course and who's going to work well in that group of five women. And then she would do them. So usually end up with either two or three uh, non-Christians to two or three Christians. But the weighting was always very similar in terms of numbers to, to add the flow of the conversation. And actually, it took conversations to a, a level that was really deep very, very fast, didn't it, Joe? And, and I think that was the benefit of Come Dine With Me, that actually relationships were being built, but actually the conversations, so they would get to asking questions about God and, and, and spirituality. I, I would say we accelerated about three years' worth of relationship building in five meals because... It was a really intense opportunity for conversation and we really, really got to know people. Um, Schoolgate mums uh, at a level that it would have taken us years and years and years actually to get to that level of friendship. It was a really, it's a good trick, it's a useful tool.
We've, next time we're going to plan to try and do it with couples when we've when we've moved house we've got an intention to try and see how it works with couples so 10 people around the table um, and see whether that dynamic works or doesn't work it'll be an experiment it's just a very simple way of getting a group of friends together and actually as joe says accelerating the relationship and therefore demonstrating christ because each time they sat down and wrote five times they demonstrated christ and then we did score each other can you guess whether I won or not? <laughs> My Iranian Muslim friend literally cooked for a week and on the, mo on the morning of our actual thing, she, she got up at like three o'clock in the morning to start preparing the food. She, re she cooks, she really cooks. And me, not so much, she won. <laughs> cool. Okay, so uh, we're open for questions. If anyone's got any questions, so far away for you. What are we looking for in our new house? It's a really, really simple question to answer. We are looking for a large living space. We're looking to downsize. We need a cheaper accommodation um, to meet our needs at this time. Uh, but we are looking for a large living space uh, with a good flow. We don't want a kitchen that's separate from the sort of living areas. We want a kind of an open plan living space because we have found that that facilitates our hospitality best. So I. I really hope we can find something to buy rather than extend <laughs> that meets this criteria. But <laughs> there isn't a lot of choice on the market actually in Lancaster. So um, uh, unfortunately, the house that I fell in love with has just sold. So we're looking for another. Yeah, you can talk into that. Oh, so um, we train, we train um, uh, church planters uh, as well. So we train people to go and plant churches. And this question comes up is a really key question for people who are going to plant churches, leading them to leading church plants is because it's actually quite it's quite key in if you're buying a house if your if your life is mixed up with God and church because we aim to, to bring people to God and church in that sense and we introduce people to Christ but the Christ love of the church is massively important to us and uh, so we will do we, we go for a big living space we go for a downstairs toilet particularly important if you've got children um, because what we don't want is to, because we have so many strangers come into our house, we don't want our, stra our strangers wandering upstairs when our children are asleep, when we are downstairs and can't leave the room. Um, so that became a key thing for us, and good parking. Yeah. They're not, you know, they're not do or die things, but that's, mm. that's what came key for us. Yeah. The parking was massive for us. We didn't want a house, we've, 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 we've knocked off so many houses where we could only park one or two cars outside the front, whereas we know we need a space you know, even if it's to the road, if they can park outside the road outside, then that's great. But sometimes if you're buying them in Kendall in the countryside, there's no parking on the road. So you've just got to be really careful. Yes, so the question is about having people around for tea or supper. Yes, I mean... How do you end it going on to the evening? It's a good question. So language is a helpful thing. If we don't want people to stay, then we do not invite them for dinner. <laughs> so uh, obviously we live in Kendall, so dinner might mean lunchtime, mightn't it? So you have to go over that. But what I'm saying is we don't, we, I'm, I'm clear with people. Sometimes we invite people around for an evening meal and I would say, I'll come at eight and we'll, um, or seven or eight, and we'll have a meal together and we'll spend the evening. But to other people I say, just come and have tea with us. We might just be having beans on toast. 
I make it clear that I'm writing them for tea time. Now, very often we'll do that on an evening where there's a meeting in the evening. Also, children, um, again, in British culture, children usually go to bed about 7 o'clock, don't they, little children? So there's sort of a natural, on a school night as well, there sort of will be a natural end. But if I, if I feel like it's not obvious, then I will say, just come for tea for a couple of hours, then Rob's got to go out, or then we'll have to put the children to bed, or then... I've got something else planned, but we just just say what you mean um, so that it's clear. Now, if people do linger, that's okay. Getting your pajamas. <laughs> <Putting your laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> Putting your pajamas on would be a clue. <laughs> yeah, that would be a clue. So, if the worst comes to the worst, there you go. Put your pajamas on. <laughs> So my friend Portia um, had a word for me, actually. She, uh, she said, what we're trying to tell people is that actually what the Bible calls us to do is to humble ourselves to serve. I think that's really, really helpful, that we're making a choice to humble ourselves to serve. That means choosing not to be proud. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't feel it. I have... Mostly people don't comment, but I have once had a woman come and look at the fireplace. <laughs> once. <laughs> the dust, she swept her finger through the very thick dust and was horrified. But uh, in, in 20 years, once, that's not really, it's not really a big deal. It is a choice. Sometimes people walk in and sometimes I do say, I'm really sorry I haven't hoovered. But what I choose to do as well is... Sometimes I could have hoovered or I could have tidied up. I know they're coming. I actually have the time. I could do it. Now, this is really like the extra mile. Sometimes I just choose not to anyway on purpose. Why? Because I'm trying to set a low bar. I'm trying to make this lifestyle that is not necessarily easily accessible for people. You're right, it's not easy to make a transition, to say I'm going to choose not to care. So I choose to model something. I choose to show people that you can still have people around when there is crumbs and mud on the floor. So sometimes it isn't just that I couldn't have done it. I just choose not to even though I could. I actually could quickly clean the bathroom and I don't. And it's a choice. And it is still embarrassing. And so sometimes I do. I sometimes I do. Sometimes I do clean before people come, and sometimes I don't. And sometimes it's an active choice. But it is a choice to choose that I'm saying there's a bigger picture, there's a bigger purpose. I actually want this to be accessible for people. I want people to feel like, oh, do you know when I go to people's houses and they're not tidy? Do you know how I feel? Really pleased. It makes me feel more normal. I'd much prefer to go to somebody's house that isn't so clean and tidy. I'd much prefer to go to somebody's house where I'm not worrying, where can I put this cup down? Am I going to spill it on their white carpets? Or am I going to leave a ring? Do I need a coaster? Where are the coasters? Nobody ever asks that question in my house. <laughs> So it is not, I'm not saying it's easy and I'm not saying it's painless. I'm actually saying it's painful and hard and it's choosing that we value something more. Something, something else is that um, you, the culture that you come from is very different to ours. So we've got South African friends. And so when we speak to, speak to them, we know that South African people are very much more 
are forthright and they say what they think much more than, than the English culture, this culture we live in. So Joe's right in that our English culture, people will come to visit your house. They wouldn't say anything if they saw it. They just wouldn't say it. Whereas a South African might come into the house and say what he sees and what he thinks because they're much more forthright. But the, the key thing is, whether they see it or not, is actually what they will leave with is what they've met in you. So what, what, when Joe and I go and eat with people, and people invite us around for dinner, which quite often do, they invite us, but we go around for dinner, we never talk about the house. I don't think I can ever remember us coming away from the house, whether it's super smart or super, super not smart. We've never walked away from a house um, feeling, uh, saying comments about the house. We always talk about the relationship with the people. Oh, yeah, those, we, we, these people are going to be friends for a long time, or these people are a bit weird. or like, you know, not, We're not even, that, not even engaging of them, more to do with how have we related. And, and that, oh, that was a great evening, or or uh, perhaps we overstayed our welcome a bit, do you think they wanted to go to bed a bit earlier? Or do we, do we talk about the relationship that's, that's about to develop there? And that, that just wipes away everything else. It just disappears. And that's what people are like. Because people come there, and their initial thing might be, thinking, oh, I don't know these people. I'll look around the house. I can work out who they are by looking at what their house is like. But actually, when they talk to you and they sit down for dinner, actually what they remember is a great time they had at the dinner table. We've just obviously been with Raj and Charlotte for the first time in their home. And Joe, you know, sometimes when you go into people's homes, you do feel a bit awkward. What are the rules? Am I allowed to? Yeah, how long am I going to wait before I get a cup of tea? And we have just felt so welcomed, really. I've been thinking about it. And so I have felt like I can just make myself a cup of tea. I, in fact, have made myself a cup of tea. Like, that's... A, you can create an atmosphere in your home. Um but of being loving and accepting of people and letting people... What we want is for people to come in and be part of our family. So we say, help yourself. Yeah. You might yeah. be really thirsty if you wait for me to ask you. I might get distracted and forget. So Make yourselves at home. So Raj's house rule that, that he, he quickly laid out to me as soon as I got there was, you don't ask for anything. Just, just whatever you yeah. see, help yourself. He said, don't ask. Yeah, it's great. So. So that's an invitation for all of you. Just go around and yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're not just special. Pop in. Anybody. I think that's okay. Just yeah. pop in. We're going to do that on Sunday morning. Actually, you get to see a bit more of that you are. That's absolutely on the ball. So for us, we're not talking about just involving people in us and who, what they see in us. We're talking about people coming in to see Christ's community at work. Not a meeting, but a Christ community loving and caring for each other. So the, the scripture that I always quote is the one where it says, um, by the way you love each other, they will know you are believers of me or followers of me, it says. And, uh, and that's massive. That's absolutely massive. Because actually, by me and Joe being together and some people seeing us, well, they see what we're like husband and wife loving each other, but that's husband and wife. But actually, if we have other people in the room, which is Joe's talking about, these couples with, with that have come down with me, is actually they see something, they see a love of a community of people. So you're spot on. Church is not a meeting. I can't say this strongly enough. Church is not a meeting. It's not. A, and we all do it. Where are we going on Sunday? Are we going to church? Well, we know what we mean. It's a gathering of our community. That isn't what church is. You are the church. Every minute of every day, you are the church. And, oh, we're on the, we're on the East Coast. Use. <laughs> yeah? This is much better. This is much more helpful. You, actually, you aren't the church on your own. It's not true. You, singular, are not the church. Use are. Yous are the church. 
So the challenge is, can you live like yous are? Yeah, really good question. For those of us that are tidy freaks, actually, that can be really, really hard when people come in and make a mess, it can make you panic. So that's really interesting because you're sort of the opposite person to me, Jen. So I find it challenging because I'm worried that people will think my house is too messy. So that for me, not being tidy is the barrier. But for you, being tidy is a barrier because people will come in and make your house messy. We've both got a problem. We're at opposite ends of it. We've both got a problem. And this is the reality. We, we all are somewhere on this scale, aren't we? We've all got a problem. In the end, it's a choice. But also, let me tell you, practice makes it get easier. So it's harder at first. And, you know, people might see it on your face and you might have to go, I'm really sorry, I'm trying really hard. <laughs> you might have to say to yourself in my head, it is okay, I'm just going to stay up half an hour longer and tidy it up. It is, it's a cost. Because actually, even I have to tidy up the mess. My kids have to tidy up the mess. My kids count the cost of living this lifestyle. They have to let other people play with their toys and they have to pick up things that they have not put on the floor. It's painful. Nobody likes that. No kids like tidying up. I did not do it. No. But actually, we're loving people. We're being hospitable. And actually, we're on this journey. It is painful. There's something else that's going on there, isn't it? You have modern Australia baby. Yes. Yes. That's right. Women. And other, peop other people in the church who come to you. So you end up modeling to people who come to you and see what you're doing. And you invite other Christians to be part of what you're doing. Um, I'll just say one. Can I add one other thing to what you're saying there? Um, we we we're not. We don't get super spiritual. Um, we're not super spiritual people, but we do understand that the enemy is against what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So anywhere where we want to display Christ, the enemy is enemy is against that. Mm -hmm. So for you and and being tidy, Joe for being untidy in in terms of what your problems are, the enemy will try and speak into that. So you will start to be thinking, ah. Oh, he, he sends barbs at you, so he'll, he'll be, there'll be, you'll sit there thinking, do you know what, I can't really invite anyone around because of this. And that's what he wants. He doesn't want to invite, invite around, uh, people around, and Joe's the same. I don't want, and so he's, he will do anything to stop this sort of thing, because this is how Christ gets glorified. So he will try and stop that. And he's, he sends out those, those and, he, and if you listen to the lies of the enemy, then actually you're getting more and more locked into, into being where he wants you, which is not displaying Christ. So I'm not saying if you don't do this, you're in league with the enemy. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that sometimes we can all, whatever our problems are, whatever our situations are, sometimes we can listen to, we can allow things to stop us getting involved in displaying Christ more than we, more than we should do. Just like to add a little comment about families, nuclear families, those of you with kids. It is a real cost. Your children are sharing you if you invite people into the, your lives. They are not having the um, same amount of time one-on-one -on -one with you that they would if you didn't have anybody around. They are having the mess. They are having all the, the sharing of toys and the sacrifice. They are. But what they are also doing, as Raj is saying, is actually they are learning that there is something of greater value. We're actually training our children to value something so much more. It is a journey. One of our children did not want to come with us this weekend. 
we've got two with us. Of the two that are with us, one of them did not did not want to, I do not want to go to Teesside. Apparently we didn't. I think we were in Middlesbrough. I don't know. I'm very confused. I don't have any clue where I am. <laughs> I do not want to go to Teesside. I want to stay at home while you're coming. I, we just we made us you're coming. Now we could have let her stay with somebody else, another family in the church. I know exactly where she wants to be, in Blackpool. <laughs> but actually, I really felt, no, come on, we, I want her to remember, it's been a little while since they've come with us, we've done some, a few, couple of things without them, I want her to remember that she's part of this mission. She's got something to show and to share. And so actually, Raj, last night, was saying, wow, Look at the kids. They're having a great time. They stayed up really late, about 11 o'clock, running around the house wild, having loads of fun. They've had a great time. Actually, their kids have had an opportunity to be hospitable to my kids. So I talked to this. I won't tell you which one of them it was. My embarrasser. I, I talked to her and said, come on, actually, we are. You, this is how we live our lives. These are the sacrifices that you make. Actually, it's good for you to help show that to other people. So we're going to go. You're coming. And those kids are going to have to share their toys with you, share their parents, share their time. They're going to have to look after you and be hospitable. You're going to make a mess that they're going to have to pick up maybe actually they get to be part of this journey so actually the more she said i do not want to go to Deeside," and sulked on the way here this morning i said so are you having a nice time <laughs> just let me know when you are ready to apologize <laughs> and say you were right mummy just let me know when you're ready for that <laughs> she pulled a sulky face. She's having a great time. She's having a great time because actually she's caught up in something bigger. She, she is. The, our kids are caught up in something bigger. And actually we're growing, r raising adults now. Their older three are really adults um, who are actually know how they want to live their lives. They know what they want their homes to be like because they have uh, grown up in a very different way to how I grew up. I grew up in a Christian family, but... I'm not saying we never had people round for day. My mum and dad did dinner parties occasionally and Sunday lunch occasionally, and we went to other people's houses for Sunday lunch occasionally. We did not live in the way we did. I really struggled. A few years ago, I had this real conscious crisis. I'm a bad mum. I do not cook my children proper meals. Because when I was a child, my mother would have, in the morning, defrosted four pork chops, four of us in our family, started preparing some vegetables. I do not cook proper meals. I do not cook that kind of food. And I had this kind of epiphany. You actually can't defrost four pork chops and start preparing vegetables at nine o'clock in the morning if you don't know who's going to be there for tea. Four pork chops is not an expandable meal. And I had to remind myself, no, I don't cook that kind of food because I'm valuing something more. And it was a real, it was like a battle moment. I'm a bad mum. No, no, I'm just living my life in a different way. I'm raising my children in a different way to how I was raised. I've digressed, I think. And I'll draw that wider. So what, what Joe said with uh, nuclear family, actually, we're part of a church family. Yeah. Yeah. And so those of you who are really good at this, and there's people who do come to our houses who are just brilliant at this kind of thing. In fact, they might have all the fears and the, the worries that Joe talked about we have we have but there's something about drawing the wider family not just our nuclear family into that amazing dynamic so you know we've got around john's two house yeah. and they're just like oh my 
The, the thing, the thing with that is, uh, if you if you just work as a couple or as an individual, inviting non-Christians into your house, they will look at you and they think, "Oh, this guy's really nice," or "This this couple are really nice." Uh, we just love them being their friends, and they're just really nice people. If you've got another few people from your church family, another couple, or another couple of single people in your, or or even another two couples, another some some single people in there as well, then they look at all of you and say, "You're all really nice. What's going on here? Why are you so nice?" And all of a sudden, it, it becomes bigger than that. Um, and then actually, that's when Christ is displayed, I think. Christ is displayed more in that atmosphere than it is with the, the individuals. Well, so we're here provoking you now, but Raj is totally right. This is something that in our day-to-day lives, we are discipling other people into. So actually, our Blackpool friends, guess what they eat on a Friday night? <laughs> oh yeah, baby, it's pizza night. <laughs> In our Preston Church plant, guess what they eat on a Friday night? Pizza. It's pizza night. Actually, we've we have in, uh, sometimes inadvertently and sometimes intentionally discipled other people into this way of life. I've only mentioned a few of the meals that we do in a week. Lunches are also a regular thing after our coffee morning, which goes from people's house to people's house. Everybody's invited back to my house for lunch. Now we are moving. I'm still going to come through to Kendall for coffee morning, but I'm guaranteeing that people aren't going to come half an hour back to Lancaster for lunch. But do you know what's interesting? Recently, some other people are stepping up, and not necessarily does everybody come back to my house for lunch. The last two weeks, uh, we've stayed at the house where coffee was hosted. We've stayed for lunch. They've planned and said, people are welcome to stay for lunch. So we haven't all come back to my house. We could have done. If they hadn't filled the gap, we would have done. And that's really encouraging to me because I'm saying, oh, there isn't going to be a gap because actually people are going to grow into this. They've seen something modelled. We do cheese toasties for lunch. Let me just say, you do not have to, like, home-make soup or, I don't know, uh, provide lots of salads and side things. It is cheese toasty or cheese and ham, if you're lucky. It's always an option. Sometimes an option, not always, sometimes just cheese. That's what we have, just make cheese toasty. The question is, one or two? (laughs) (laughs) Or sometimes people share, one and a half. Um, Really, I just, I don't vary them. I don't think, oh, no, I feed them cheese toasties every week, week in, week out, twice a week, three times a week, always cheese toasties. No, no, no. This is all I can do, so this is how I do it. This is achievable for me. There's a plan, cheese toasties. Just get a really good cheese toasty maker that will last you a while and you can keep going for... Yes, <laughs> it's easy. Yeah. Um, we've had um, we've had situations in our house where people have been. It's been difficult to have them in our house, so uh, people on drugs and things like that. And we've just we've just had to be very careful in terms of, of uh, security in that sort of sense. But even one of the guys who who just was on drugs, he he ended up being, being a really close friend. Um, he got saved in our church, but. We then found out he was on the run, and uh, I, in fact, I had the pleasure of, of leading him through to Christ. And, and then we found out he was on the run. He just, without us saying anything to him, he went and gave himself up at, up at um, the police station, and then got eight years in prison for. And that was because, be, not because it wasn't. I mean, you can't just say it was because he became a Christian, but because he became a Christian, he made that step of wanting to give himself up and and doing doing it right. So, um, uh, yeah. So, but. Toxic. I don't know if we've had any toxic relationships, have we? Can you think of I think the truth is that we want to love people and loving people 
always means there have to be boundaries. Otherwise, it isn't loving people. So just allowing bad behaviour and not challenging it. Now, th things need to be challenged through relationships. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about genuine friendships and relationships. Yeah, not bringing the law to people. But boundaries are always loving. So that might be in all sorts of ways, the sorts of things that we will and won't talk about or the sorts of behaviour that we will and won't allow. So a toxic is quite a strong word. I'm not sure um, that is one that I would apply to uh, any of the friendships that we've had, but certainly challenging and difficult. Um, and sometimes we have to say, talk about afterwards, things that have happened in front of our kids, hmm. um, talk about to talk about that and talk about what's good for people, how we love people, but actually what the Bible says um, and what, how Jesus wants us to live our lives and how we're loving and helping people through some of their behaviours. So, yes, again, that's back to it being a mess, isn't it? It is messy. People make good choices and bad choices, and if they're part of your life, that does affect you. And that's where you need some wisdom for boundaries. I'm a kind of forthright person, you might have noticed. So people know what they're getting with me. They're going to get a really, really straight answer, um, which he helps. It makes it easier for me. You might actually find that really difficult, but you're part of a church family. So we're not doing this on our own, are we? We're a team. So actually you get other people engaged who can help you with boundaries if you're having a problem in that area. And it can be that people can uh, abuse your trust and your friendship and your relationship and take you for a bit of a ride. And actually, that's where we need to be family together. And those stronger in an area need to protect those who are weaker in an area. Uh, we're not doing this on our own. If we were, we might be in real trouble mightn't we but actually we're not so there will be people you've got your elders maybe your small group leaders your friends people that you can go to you can help you. you they need to be engaged in these relationships as well so I think that's probably the key good question so the practical sides yes mostly the people that eat around our house very often is more mums and kids and youth we Pete's Friday night, pizza night, youth are really encouraged. We really encourage young people to come to that as well. Um, we want them to be engaged in seeing something modelled that's different. Um, but it is more mums and kids. Yes, sometimes it is spontaneous, sometimes it is planned. It's a real mixture, very often. Why don't you come back for tea? Now, people might say no for all sorts of reasons. But if you just keep on asking, in the end, they're so embarrassed at having said no so many times, they just have to say yes. It's brilliant. Nagging works. <laughs> it's a whole other pet topic of mine. Um, nagging works, okay? So actually, in the end, if you ask people, now, it, to get dads and whole families involved or older teens, it tends to involve more planning, less spontaneity. And that <laughs> might involve weekends, something, we live in the Lake District, it's beautiful, so we'll go to a lake, we'll have um, invite people for barbecue, or a planned barbecue in the evening. So it involves a mixture of approaches. Also, what if you don't have a school gate? 
I don't have a school gate anymore. My kids are not very well. They don't go to school. They're not well enough to go to school. I know they look well. Trust me, they're not. Um, and uh, so actually, I don't have a school gate anymore. So I joined a book club. Join a club. Find some friends. Or engage with other people's friends. Uh, we might have to be creative. Uh, the school gate is a really, really good window, but it doesn't last for long in life. Um, and we have to then find other ways of meeting people, knitting that, well, all sorts of things. Well, one of the things that we, we do is in the same way as we will mix up Christians in our, who come to our house, so we'll, we'll purposely invite different people in the church who we think might get on with our, with our non-Christian friends. We'll do the same with with and a mix-up of, of non-Christians as well, if, if you can understand what I'm saying. So it might be that Joe's got a friend, uh, a friend from the school gate, but if she wants to, to invite the husband along, who isn't a primary relationship between, I don't, I've never met him, um, and she doesn't know him, so she only knows the, the wife. But then we, we get together, we'd have, we do that in more of an evening meal. So it's a much more of a, a more, rather than just come back around afterwards, that becomes, because the husband doesn't know anyone, why would he come around? Come around? But if it's an in invite, couple and couple, or couple to another two couples, then it becomes much more of a, of a, of a planned but workable thing. And then the husbands who's not Christian can, can, understand, can understand that and say, oh yeah, we're invited around for dinner. And then quite often they, because they, it's another thing in, in English culture, is uh, oh, they've had us around for dinner, we better have them around for dinner. And so then you, you've got this ongoing relationship almost built in before you even start. Yeah, there's um, another question over here as well. Oh, I just think, oh, I was going to add one thing. I can't remember what it was. That's annoying. Just wait a split second, it went. Culture, planned, men. I know, it'll come back to me. It'll come back to me. There's another question over here. The question's about how we, in the midst of all this business, maintain our walks with God and uh, in, in terms of growing ourselves, our family and our community. I remember the other thing I was going to say, so I'm going to come back to that. I was just going to say, be smart when you're engaging with people that don't know Jesus. We are used to being in a church family where we mix with all sorts of different people. But actually, it's not really normal out there in the world People spend their time with people who are like them, similar age, similar lifetime, similar, similar uh, ethnicity. We can't take people that don't have Christ in common and force them into a relationship that just feels really weird. It doesn't help people. Taking a, I don't know, a 14-year-old young man and, th oh, who am I going to invite around for tea? You guys, it's not gonna they're not going to connect so well with people at a totally different stage of life, are they? It's going to feel a bit weird. So actually, be sensible. Try and think, who will my friends get on with? Naturally, we can grow people into being part of a wider church family and community, but which is really important and healthy and good for them, isn't it? But it's not really the best place to start. If I'm got a 14 year old lad that I've made a connection with somehow I can't now imagine how that has happened through one of my other children I guess I'm going to invite some other young people around for tea at the same time not some people at a later stage of life it's not a place to start they were just that's weird so be smart we can try and think oh we want because we are the family of God we want people to engage in family we do 
But in we, ha we have to actually help lead people into that. That was what I was going to say. It was just an aside. I was thinking about dads, you see. Dads find it difficult to connect. If the dad likes football, find a friend who likes football and invite them at the same time as well. They've got something to talk about. It just makes it easier. That's where I was going. Um, yeah, we've, done a, we've got a fancy football league uh, that runs in our church, and that is infiltrated by a mass of uh, non-Christians. And that's huge. And then so the conversation then is massive between us in, on, an, on a rolling basis between Christians and non-Christians over that whole sense of being built around um, a, a, relation, a functional relationship. It's with guys, we've found, with, with ladies, it's more, much more easier for them to just come around for a cup of coffee. With guys, you invite the guy, why don't you come around for a cup of coffee? Why? And it's like, but focus around something like sport or even or going to the pub for a, for a pint or something like that. It's something where they know, actually, I can understand what I'm doing here is much more important for guys. And so we tend to use those sorts of things. So to return to the question about our spiritual growth, probably going to cause some offence here. <laughs> I was sort of raised feeling that to be a good Christian, you had to do certain things. You had to read your Bible every day, preferably early in the morning. Preferably you had to get up early in the morning to read your Bible every day because that's how you had to start your day. I am not a morning person. I'm not a morning person. I've never been able to do that. I might try because I think it was a good thing and it'd fail. But that was right when I was a teenager because I'm much better in the evening. So I would be in a habit of reading my Bible before I went to bed. I felt like I was ticking that box. Then I got married. It was a great inconvenience to my sort of spiritual routine because I wasn't going to bed on my own anymore. There might be other things on the agenda at night time. <laughs> we read together secular <laughs> books. That's what I'm talking about. Um, actually, that didn't really work anymore. Also, we had these small children. I was saying this morning, I really honestly didn't sleep for 14 years. It was long and painful. <laughs> and actually, I found it really, really, really hard to to actually read my Bible. They just don't leave you alone. You can't even have a wee on your own, let alone a quiet time on your own. What is that when you've got tiny kids? We have to be flexible. We haven't come into a law and rules. We've come into a relationship with God. And I would suggest that different stages in your life, how you outwork your relationship with God is going to, how you feed yourself let's talk about it that way, it's going to look different. At some stage in your life, you're going to be able to have one kind of routine that will help you, and at other stages in your life, it isn't going to help. Maybe a day will come where I turn into an early riser. It seems impossible to imagine now. Now, at the moment in my life, I really like to sit and have a cup of tea in the morning. I have a chair that I like to sit in, got a nice view. That's when I'm going to read my Bible. Or, I have it on my phone, and when I am waiting to collect somebody, I can do it then. It's just not about rules. We're in a relationship with a living God. Yes, it's really good to read your Bible. But you're not going to die if you don't. If you can't, can it's a good aim, but it's not essential. I worship in the car when I'm driving, with my kids, or on my own. We d I just uh, Being creative really is the key, I think, can to I that. There isn't a one-fits-all. So uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the key things with this phrase, what, what, how your walk with God, is that 
what we've done in church is we've said actually a walk with God is about spiritual disciplines. It's about our prayer life. It's about our times worshipping with CDs. It's about reading the Bible. And that's our walk with God. And those are representative of our walk with God. They are not our walk with God at all. That is not the walk with God. They are tools that help our walk with God. Our walk with God is our relationship with him. It's, it's loving him. It's about speaking to him. It's about him speaking to us. It's about our relationship with God. That's our walk with God. Are you walking with him in a sense of, actually, I am not going to have my head turned to the left and right of the attractions of this world, but I'm focused on Jesus Christ. Now, our Bible helps us in that. And our, our prayer life helps us in that. And our worship helps us in those things. But they are not our walk with God. And so when we get locked onto those things, saying, oh, this is our walk with God, then all of a sudden we are, we are missing. Because sometimes people can go through those tick, 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 and actually their walk with God hasn't changed. Because their walk with God is about, actually, my life is about focusing on Christ. I am doing this for with Christ. So we would say that all that we've been talking about this morning is the way that we worship Jesus Christ. It's not about putting a CD in your thing. It's we worship. It's not about putting a CD in, in your CD player and listening to that to the latest album. Actually, worshiping Christ is by the way you live your life. So what we are talking here today is a way that we worship Jesus Christ. So this is what you've been hearing this morning. It's not how does this affect our walk with God. This is our walk with God. What you see is the product of our walk with God, our relationship with him, how much we love him, how much we care for him. We are not prepared to compromise on displaying Christ's glory to the world and, and preaching his gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Bible reading just helps us in that. The prayer life is absolutely essential. A relationship with Jesus Christ is absolutely essential, but it helps in our overall walk with God. I would perhaps even go a step further and say you could sit at home, read your Bible and pray all day long and possibly never really grow because actually a walk with God is a very active thing. The times that we really grow is actually when we're under pressure, when we're facing those crises of what do I really value? Because it's, it's real life challenges that actually reveal what we really believe. We can easily say we believe in loving people, in being hospitable, but actually we find out if we really believe it by whether we actually do it or not. We can say that we really believe that God is for us and not against us until one of our kids is really sick and not healed <coughs> or whatever challenges we meet in life. It's in those moments of actually living life that it reveals what we really believe. Not what we think we believe, but what we really believe. And that's where we have the opportunity to grow, to help one another to grow, to remind one another who Jesus really is. So I, I, it has to be a, an active journey. Our relationship with God is part of our lives. And actually it's in the challenges, the struggles, the pressing in and actually actively living it out that we discover then what we really believe. When my friend's daughter died, that's when we discover what we really believed. We really believe that God is good for us, loving that's when it tests what you really believe. That's when it really, really shows is on the journey with other people. We get much more opportunities for journeying. <laughs> we do. And as we share our lives together, we get much more opportunities for growing because we meet much more challenges. And actually that shows what's really, really in our hearts. Jesus, thank God.
Do we safeguard time for our nuclear family and time one-on-one -on -one with each child? Yes, yes, we do. Actually, I'm at a stage of life, I used to go, this is even really radical, I don't go to a small group anymore, a community group, a, a life group, whatever you want to call them, in the evenings. I, I, for all my life, have always gone to a small group, as in gone to that meeting in the evening once a week. I don't do that anymore. We now, we do do weekends away and times away and things like this, where we're actually away from our kids, but actually when I'm at home, of your average evening, I am in, and actually we don't have meetings, very many meetings in the evening. We have a few things that happen sort of once a month. So maybe one evening a week, we might be in the evening having a meal with someone or doing a discipleship group or something in our home. Um, but actually all the rest of the evenings, Robbie's probably working, but I'm at home with my kids. And we're a great believer in the box set. So, because our kids can't really do, because they're not, well, they can't do a lot of very active things. Um, so, uh, we watch Gilmore Girls with one, or Ally McBeal with another, or Heartland with another. We have something that's sort of low energy that we can sit and do together. And actually, yes, we have specific times with, I, I use the wonder of the box set to achieve this most easily. Specific times with each child. And we, we, te we teach through the things that we watch on TV. Not, we're not saying that we teach from those box sets, but what we do is we challenge the concepts that you see coming up there. Friends, not very moral. Yeah, so it's easy. <laughs> Great talking opportunity. It's easy with your older teenagers to challenge what they're seeing on Friends. It's funny, but actually, what are they really watching? And it's easy then to say, actually, no, the Bible says something differently. And God says something differently. So the challenges, and you can talk about the way that, that things are portrayed on TV and the way that's a challenge. So, so it's not like we sit and done off and say, okay, now we've got the teaching point. It's not like that, but it's just, it happens more as a natural part of conversation. As soon as you start getting into formal teaching sessions and things like that, then it just turns, turns them off. But if you're just talking generally backwards and forwards, it just, it's a natural concept of, of saying, actually, this is God. So there, what we're doing is we're teaching them to have a walk with God in a way that actually spots, actually, this is and this. Is this. And we say, say this is biblical, is this, Bible says this. So again, we have a daily, weekly, monthly, annual cycle. We have a family holiday at the, once every year, two weeks, once a year we go away on our own together. We have, we eat together every night. There are not people with us every night, but we do always eat together as a family. Um, we have rhythms in our life that make sure that we're getting one-on-one -on -one time um, with our kids uh, and investing in them. The people that I am discipling most are my children. The people that I have the biggest opportunity actually to launch out into the world, uh, into relational missions that are going to uh, show the gospel to the world, is my kids. I'm aiming to raise them to have a passion for him and for a passion for other people, for loving people like we do. And so actually they're the people I most want to invest in. So yes, we do. We just we have the certain routines and rhythms again that we plan yeah. in and make we've, sure that that happens. We've, we've just stopped actually doing something we used to do called date night where each one of us, just sorry, Joe and I would take one of our children out on our own for just an evening for, for quality time and would spend the evening with them. And it was uh, something that we really wanted to do with our children was a phase of life where that was really important for us to do that. Um, but I think one thing is really... Five days a week. 
No, once a week, we would... So every Monday evening, Rob or I would take turns. We would alternate. And handily, we had five kids, so they could just roll on a rolling programme and they would naturally fall into taking turns with us. One thing that's really, really important for us, though, is that um, we do life with our children, with our life. So what we, we're very careful of not saying, OK, this is our family life and this is all the stuff we do for church or for God. But actually, our family life and those are mixed as well. So we're not, what we're not saying is, because you've got to be very careful in that situation, you're not, um, your child is being neglected. But actually, we don't do that. We're very strong on bringing them and bringing them involved in things. So as, for example, um, one of the girls coming here, we, we, we want them to be involved in what we're doing. And consequently, what that ends up doing is then we have children who love what we're doing. So when we're saying, okay, we're up and moving, guys, we're going to another church, we're planting another church, which we've done several times in our lives, they're like, oh, great a new set of friends, rather than, oh, we don't want to move. It's like, because actually what they're saying is, what they're seeing is actually the benefits in this as well. And they know why we're doing it, and they want to be involved in it. And hence, we have the first one who's left our house has gone straight into a church plant. And the second one who's going to leave our house is thinking of what, where, where he can go to terms of church or church plant. That's his next step. And that's their focus is that, is that they, they love church. And they've come from, they've come from, so we hear this, and I don't, so to be honest, I, I really struggle with it, is where, where you hear of, of pastor's children who hate church because of being orphans, like in their own homes. And to be honest, why have these, why have these pastors not in, uh, involved them in loving church in the way they do? Why can't, aren't they demonstrating their own hearts and their own lives in terms of what they love and what they care for and showing them how important that is and why? Not in a, you must love this because we love it, but as in, this is how beautiful it is. Rob is obviously making a sweeping generalisation here and sometimes kids just do what they jolly well want and the, the opposite to what, how they've been raised. We know that, don't yeah. we, actually? They're, and some uh, of ours will. growing into adults and making their own choices. Um, but we can play our part. Um, God really spoke to me about this through Abraham and Isaac. When we think about that story of Abraham and Isaac, we think about Abraham's faith, don't we? Being prepared to sacrifice his son, but having faith for a resurrection... That's what he was believing, that God would raise Isaac from the dead. He knew that Isaac was his child of promise. But Abraham, when he got to that moment of having to bind Isaac um, and put a knife to him, Abraham was a really, really, really old man. And Isaac was probably about 16. Now, I've had two 16-year-old boys and I am not old, I, they think I am, but I'm not really. Uh, there is no way I would suggest that Abraham could have physically overpowered Isaac if Isaac was unwilling. It wasn't just Abraham who had faith and was trusting God. Isaac had faith. Now, we have no record of... Uh, of up to that point of God directly speaking to Isaac. We've got lots of records of God speaking clearly to Abraham. Abraham had imparted that faith. Isaac knew who God was. Isaac had resurrection faith or trusted that God was for him and not against him. He knew it for himself. He must have done. He must have done to allow himself to be bound it's going to be a bit of a clue, isn't it? Something not right is happening. Um, my father is tying me up. I've already noticed there is wood but no goats. <laughs> he had faith as well. 
uh, Abraham had imparted that faith to his son. He'd raised him to say, people have asked us, what do you say to your children when they, uh, when they ask about God? Do you say some people believe this, some people believe that? No, we tell them the truth. He's actually the truth. <laughs> There's a God in heaven who loves you. You need him to be in charge of your lives. They have a choice to make. But we tell them the truth. Abraham didn't say to Isaac, well, some people believe this and some people believe that. And, you know, there's all these possible options in life. He told him the truth of who God was, of who God was, of why they were living their lives the way that they were. And, I, and Isaac had faith, but he had learnt that through his father they're being discipled by his father. We're raising children. We're doing our best to raise children that actually share our passion and our faith and our love of the church. We love the church. It seems like a crazy plan, doesn't it, to take us and use us to display Christ to the world. But God seems to think it's a good one. It is a mystery. And we actually want our kids to be caught up in that and to catch them up in all of that.